welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Have you considered the similarities and differences between risk and faith? While they may not have explicitly worked through them, Naomi and Ruth take a step involving both. Teaching team member Caleb Click continues the series, Ruth, a story of God's steadfast love, with this message entitled, Rest Under the Redeemer's Wings, which covers Ruth, Chapter 3. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let it be. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it out and he measured six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matters turn out, for the man will not rest but will settle the matter today. This was God's word. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, our hope, our joy this morning is we have a God who wants to be heard. We have a God who wants to be known. We have a God who delights to save sinners and to meet with the broken and the needy and to heal us in ways we don't even know we need to be healed. And so, Lord, I pray through your spirit that you would take this text And Lord, you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to Jesus. Uh, Lord, I just confess, I I don't know why it is, but Lord, I just confess my own fear right now. uh, That Lord, I won't be able to adequately convey uh, what's in this passage. And so Lord, I ask that you would be made, you would be glorified. 
you would show your strength in the very midst of my weakness. Do this now in the precious name of Jesus, your son. Amen. Over the past couple of years, one of the writers that I keep returning to over and over again is a guy named George MacDonald. And you may not know that name. That may not be one that's familiar to you. Uh, but George MacDonald is this joyfully strange, theologically confused 19th century Scottish Presbyterian pastor who has probably influenced your life, whether you realize it or not. Uh, if you've been impacted in any way, by the, the books or the films of the Chronicles of Narnia or the Lord of the Rings or Wrinkle in Time or Alice in Wonderland or a whole host of other fantasy fiction books, almost all those authors would point back to George MacDonald and say, that's the man who inspired us. Uh, C.S. Lewis said that when he read George MacDonald, it was like entering another world. Uh, they loved this man because he would create these strange, bizarre, fantastical worlds and he would invite you to step inside and in doing so, not escape the world you live, but actually see it more clearly than you'd ever seen it before. And one of his books uh, that I particularly enjoy, though I don't think it's a very good book as a whole, uh, it's got some theological things that are a little strange and the story kind of meanders, but it has these beautiful pockets of just profound truth. And one of those pockets is in the first 40 pages. A man named Vane is carried into a parallel universe through a mirror in his study. And he enters into this countryside that looks a little bit like his world, but just slightly off kilter. And he's taken on this journey that carries him to an inn. And he enters inside this inn and he meets a man and a woman, the innkeeper and his wife. And the innkeeper and his wife say to him, we have food and we have drink and we have rest for you here. And it costs you nothing. All of it's free. And so he sits at their table and he eats their bread and he drinks their wine and the food and the drink, it satisfies him in a way that no food or drink ever has. And it fills his heart with expectation for more, which if you're listening to that, you should hear communion. And then he turns to the innkeeper and his wife and he says, I've had your food and your drink. Can I have the rest as well? And so they take him by the hand and they lead him through a door to a room. And inside that room, he sees thousands upon thousands of people, all of them laying in their own beds and they're sleeping a sleep that is deeper than anything he has ever seen before, a sleep that is changing them. Faces that have been wrinkled by age are slowly but surely being restored to the smoothness of youth. Faces that were hard and cruel are slowly but surely being transformed into faces that are soft and gentle. Scars are fading and wounds are healing and life is being restored to dead bones and Vane looks at all of these people in this sleep, this blissful, perfect, deep, profound sleep and he says even more urgently than before, give this to me, give me this rest, I want what they have, please let me rest here and they say to him, we have a bed for you. It's right this way, but there's one catch this is not a rest into which you can enter by half measures. Because if you want to enjoy this rest, you must be willing to completely and unreservedly place yourself into the hands of another. Because this is a rest, a sleep, from which you cannot wake yourself. You might sleep for a night, you might sleep for a thousand years, 
but when you wake, it is not up to you. And so the question is this, do you trust me? Do you trust me enough to place your life completely and unreservedly into my hands? Because until you do, you will never know this rest. Do you trust me? That same question comes to us, doesn't it? We all want rest. Uh, you know, I'm the father of three girls under the age of four, and rest is something that I, I want more than just about anything in this life. I, I want pockets of time where I can think clearly, where there's not screams or needs, and I can just pull away and be alone because I'm an introvert. I, I wanna be able to go to sleep and lay my head on the pillow and know that what's going to wake me up is gonna be an alarm clock that I set, and, and not someone beating on the door or my four-year-old sneaking into my room and climbing over my body. Like, I just wanna rest, I wanna sleep. We all want that, but we want more than that. We want a rest that is far deeper than that kind of a rest. We want rest from our labors, rest from our toil. We want rest from conflict, from the wars that we see waged in our homes and in our churches and in our families and in our communities and in our world. We want rest from our consciences, from that voice that in the back of our mind is constantly reminding us of all the things that we have done and the things we have left undone that keeps telling us, you are not what you were supposed to be. You are not worthy, you are not good enough. Here is what you have done and here is what you are and how are you gonna deal with it? We want rest. We want rest from worry and anxiety about what tomorrow is going to bring. We want rest from this world of pain and sorrow and suffering and death where so often things happen to us and to our families and to those we love that make us cry out to God and say, how could this thing possibly be? And what all of us have to confess is that that is a rest that on our own, it is always just outside of our reach. Because what the gospel says what George McDonald's parable reminds us is that that is the kind of rest you will only find when you completely and unreservedly place yourself into the hands of another. The God of Ruth, the God of Hesed's steadfast love, the one who in Jesus says, if you are weary and heavy laden, you have only to come to me and you will find the rest that you need and the rest that you crave under my wings. And so the question is, do we trust him. That's the question of Ruth chapter three. At the beginning of the book of Ruth, Naomi is asked that question and she and her family, they say no. They see a famine in the land and they look around them and they do not trust the Lord to provide. They would not say that affirmation of faith that we just did together. Instead, they look into another land and they see food and they say, you know what? I think we can find rest for ourselves. We have only to go there and take it into our hands and we will find the thing that we need. And as always happens when we do that, they find not rest, but weariness. They find not life, but death. They find not joy, but sorrow. But when you come to Ruth chapter three, something has begun to change in Naomi. This woman who did not trust the Lord, she is beginning to trust and to believe that maybe he has good planned for her because this God, this God of grace and of steadfast love, he's grabbed a hold of her life. She's seen his hand in the person of Ruth who has clung to her. She's experienced his goodness 
in the fact that they just so happen to wander into the field of Boaz and now there's this man who is literally showing them God's hesed love by providing for them in their time of need. And everywhere she looks, there is God's kindness, his goodness, his mercy, and his compassion. And she sees one thing more. At the very end of chapter two, when Ruth returns and tells her what she's experienced at Boaz's hands, she says something that should catch your attention. This man is one of our close relatives. He is one of our redeemers. That word is significant. In the Old Testament, a redeemer was a close relative of your family who if you were in need, if the name of your family or the inheritance that your family had as a part of the people of Israel, if it was in danger, if it was at risk, a kinsman redeemer was one who would step into the gap and it cost to himself, he would redeem you in the place of your need. He would make sure that your family name would not die, that your inheritance would not go to somebody else, that you would be cared for and provided for in every way, and they would do it at cost to themselves. If someone died, and they left behind a widow and they had no children, the job of a kinsman redeemer was to marry the widow and produce a son, a child a child who would bear not the name of the one who is living, but the name of the one who had died, so that that family's name would not perish, but live as a part of the people of God. If your family, because of foolish decisions or because of natural disaster, found itself impoverished to the point where you had to sell the rights to the land that God had given you as a part of your inheritance, as a part of the people of Israel, the job of the kinsman redeemer was with his own money and it cost to himself to buy the rights to the land, not so that he could use it, but so that it could be given to the one who is impoverished and in need. And Naomi, sitting here with a dead husband and dead sons, with a widow who is clinging to her, as a family who left Israel, which means they sold the rights to their land, she is looking up and she is seeing Boaz and she is realizing that God has brought them face to face with one who can redeem them in both of those places. And she begins to wonder if maybe God is going to do something more. And the woman who did not trust the Lord, she begins to trust him and she takes a step of risky faith, a step that Ruth takes with her. You see it in these first nine verses of chapter three. It's been, based on what we know of a barley harvest, it's been about seven weeks since Boaz and Ruth first came into contact with each other. And despite what we think in our culture where we've kind of read this book as this torrid romance where they see each other and they fall in love, for seven weeks there's no indication that Boaz even speaks to her again. There's no indication that there's been any pursuit. There's no indication that they have even looked at each other face to face. It never says that Boaz was handsome or that Ruth was beautiful. There is literally nothing there in the text. And Naomi who is just now coming alive to the goodness of God, who has seen that one of their redeemers is right there in front of them, Naomi decides something has to change. A step of faith has to be taken. And I want you to notice this in verse one. It is a step that Naomi, the woman who thought only of herself in chapter one, it's a step Naomi takes, not just for her sake, but for the sake of another. Look at what she says. My daughter, should I not seek rest and hear this, for you, that it may be well with you. That hesed love that's begun to claim Naomi's life, it is a hesed love she is now beginning to show to others. 
she looks at Ruth and says, I want to see you cared for. And I know that while you have food now, you will never rest until you have a husband. And I want you to have that. So here's what you're going to do. Clean yourself off. Get the dirt and the grime of the fields off of you. Take off the cloak that identifies you as a widow who is in mourning and cannot be married. And put on a cloak that identifies you as a woman who is available. And then I want you to go outside of the city to the hills where the men are threshing the wheat. And when Boaz has finished eating and drinking and he has laid down to go to sleep, I want you to sneak up in the middle of the night. And I want you to lift the blanket off of his feet so that when the cold air strikes him and he startles and he wakens, he will look down at his feet and there you will be. And then do whatever he tells you to. And Ruth, according to verse six, Ruth does everything that her mother-in-law commands her to do. Now, a couple of things need to be said right here. Uh, first off, this is not a manual for courtship. Uh, if any of you are hearing this and thinking, Caleb is about to direct us how we're gonna get our kids hitched, uh, no, <laughs> just absolutely no. I don't wanna hear about people sneaking in each other's houses and lifting blankets off each other's feet. Uh, that is not the intent of the text. It was not the intent of the text then. This is a specific moment in a specific time with a specific set of circumstances. And on top of that, I don't want us to miss this. Ruth, what she's doing puts her in real, real danger. I mean, you should see this all over this text. There's risk here. They could lose everything that they have gained in chapter two by what is happening right here at this moment. First, there's risk to Ruth's body. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to think about what could happen here. Because what could happen to a vulnerable foreign woman who lives on the bottom rungs of Israel's society, who in the middle of the night leaves the safety of the city for the hills where no one can hear her scream, and then in the middle of the night shows up at the feet of a more powerful Israelite man. And you do the math. There's risk. We live in a cultural moment where that risk is probably felt more than it's been felt in a while. We live in the middle of the Me Too era. This moment in time where it seems like every time you turn on the news, there's some other story of a man who had power, who had position, who put on a mask of kindness and goodness and then used that position and that power and that mask to abuse people who were in need. Men like Larry Nasser the doctor for USA Gymnastics, who used his position as a doctor to get parents to trust him and then used that trust to abuse over 140 little girls. Men like Harvey Weinstein, who used his position as a movie studio head to prey on vulnerable women. And I know, I know that for some of you in this room, those aren't just stories you've heard in the news, those are things you've experienced in your own life. And I know that because I've seen it in my own family. That's Ruth's world too. Because when does Ruth live? Ruth lives in the days, as it says in chapter one, verse one, in the days when the judges ruled. And Judges is a book of the Bible that ends with this horrific story 
of a woman who is abused and raped and then dies from her injuries. That's the time when Ruth lives. There's a real risk. And not only is there the danger that she will be taken advantage of, there is also this danger. It's that Boaz, he will actually prove to be a man of virtue and a man of faith, but he will see this woman show up at his feet and he will misperceive her intentions. And he will think that a woman who by everything we can see and know about her from this book of the Bible is there with the purest of intentions that he might see her show up at his feet and think that she is there to do what most of us would think, which is seduce him. The text screams it at you. The language that the writer uses of uncovering and laying down, that's language that shows up in the Old Testament in reference to sexual immorality. And the strongest hint of it is this, there is an echo here of a story that has taken place earlier in the Bible. In Genesis 19, God saves Lot and his family from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. He pulls them out of that destruction. He saves their lives and Lot and his daughters, they escape the city to go to the hills. And Lot's daughters, they see this situation where all the men that they had known, even the ones who were supposed to be their husbands, they are all gone and they are going, well, who, who's going to provide for us? How are we going to have offspring? And so they look at their father and they come together and they say, we have a plan. They get their father drunk. This is in the Bible. And when he's lying in a drunken stupor, they lay with him and they produce a child. Do you know that child's name? Moab. What happens in Ruth 3? An Israelite man eats and drinks to the point where the text says his heart is merry, which means he's feeling the effects. He lays down to sleep and a Moabite woman lays down at his feet. If you're Boaz, what are you going to think? Naomi and Ruth, they're risking everything here. This is a burn the bridges, burn the boats, there is no turning back kind of a moment. This is something from which there is no return. If anything goes wrong, everything they have will be lost. And they will be in a position even worse than the one they started out in, but it is an action they take because there is something they have seen that has changed their perspective on everything around them. You see it in verse nine. Boaz wakes up because his feet have been uncovered. He looks down and the text says, behold, a woman, because it would startle you. And he says, who are you? Because he can't see. You gotta remember, there's no lights. This is not like today. You don't flip on your iPhone. Who are you? And Ruth in chapter three, verse nine, she says, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant. Why? For you are a redeemer. Why is Ruth there? She's there and Naomi sent her there because they have come to know and to believe a God of steadfast love who redeems the needy and they have felt his hand and they have experienced his grace and he has brought them face to face with one who by the laws of God is called to be a redeemer to them in their time of need. And they have seen that man's character and they have experienced his goodness. And so they are staring him in the face and saying, be the physical embodiment of God's chesed love to us. And notice what Ruth says. She takes the same thing that Boaz prayed for her 
in Ruth chapter two, that the Lord would bless her. Why? Because she took refuge under the wings of Yahweh and she turns to him and says, spread your wings over me. Be the answer to your prayer. Why? Because God has called you to be a redeemer. It's what you are. That's faith. This, this is what true faith looks like. Faith, faith is not that thing that we so often think it is in our culture where we, we hear people say things like you're a sinner and Jesus is a savior and we just kind of nod our heads along in agreement. That's not faith. Faith, as Martin Luther says in his commentary on Romans, faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace so sure and certain that a man would stake his life on it a thousand times. Faith risks, and it risks on the basis of who God has revealed himself to be and what God has promised to do. That's why Naomi and Ruth are there. They have seen who God is. They've experienced who he has revealed himself to be, and they know that he has called his people to embody his steadfast love in the office of a redeemer, and they are walking by faith in that promise and risking everything. On that basis, you know, it's the reason that we confess our sins on Sunday mornings and in our prayers. We risk, we risk being seen by God as we actually are and confessing what is actually going on in our hearts. And why do we do it? Because we have come to know and to believe he is a God of mercy who promises to forgive our sins in Jesus. It's the reason we share our faith. We risk we risk rejection. We risk looking foolish. We risk not having the answers because we have come to know and to believe a God who saves sinners because he saved us. A God who promises that he doesn't need strong and mighty people, he just needs weak and available ones. Who takes even our broken and marred words and can use them to bring the dead to life. Faith risks. Faith is stepping out on the bridge of God's grace and trusting that when our feet strikes the pavement, that bridge will hold because we know who God is and we know what he has promised to do. And I want you to see what happens next. That faith, it does not disappoint. Ruth and Naomi, they risk everything in faith that they are in the presence of a faithful redeemer and they are not rejected they are not abandoned. They are not cast off. Instead, they find themselves under the wings of one who is faithful to the calling that God has given him. In verses 10 to 18, you see Boaz do something that is absolutely remarkable. Boaz doesn't take advantage of Ruth. He doesn't misperceive Ruth. Boaz sees this woman who has shown up in the middle of the night at his feet and Boaz says, you want to be redeemed? Well, I will guarantee you this, it is going to happen. And notice the very first thing he does, he honors her. Look at verse 10. May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness. And notice that word, that's that chesed word again that keeps showing up. You have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you've not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now my daughter, do not fear the danger, the risk, it's all over. 
I will do for you all that you ask for all my townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Boaz looks at Ruth and he sees this woman who embodied God's steadfast love to Naomi, who clung to her in her time of need, who bound herself to a bitter, hopeless, faithless woman and became the picture of God's grace and care for that woman. He looks at this woman who has said, I will die with Naomi. I will provide for her and care for her. And he says, what I'm seeing right now, this is a greater kindness than even that was. Because what is Ruth doing? Boaz is not saying you're showing kindness to me. This is not Boaz saying, well, this is really flattering. That makes this really nice. Why is Boaz saying this? He's saying what you're doing right now in the same way that Naomi sent you to me because she cared for you, you're here because you care for Naomi. You didn't go to other men, why? Because those other men couldn't redeem Naomi's family name and Naomi's family land. And so you bound yourself to her even in this. You love her and you are showing God's Hesed love. Even here, you are a worthy woman. But there's a complication. Boaz says there's another relative, another redeemer, and he's nearer than I am, which means I can't redeem you unless he first refuses to do so. But I promise you this, you will be redeemed by him or by me and then he does this extraordinarily weird, not at all romantic thing. He gives her six measures of barley, verse 15. If you're looking for a Mother's Day gift, this is not it. <laughs> it's a weird moment, but it's not so weird if you recognize this. First, that's 80 pounds of barley, which means Ruth is a sturdy woman because she has to carry that from the hills back to the city. That's a lot of barley. But here's what makes this significant. Boaz is saying, I don't want you just to have the word of my promise. I want you to have a physical, tangible sign that what I say I will do, I will surely do. That's his name on a contract. And Naomi sees it. When she sees Ruth staggering home under 80 pounds of barley, her arms not empty, but full. Naomi looks at her and says, wait, my daughter. Verse 18, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man, the faithful redeemer, he will not rest until the matter is settled today. In God's steadfast love, he has brought us under the wings of a faithful redeemer who will not stop his labor until we have experienced his redemption in full. The rest they craved, the rest they needed, it's a rest they found because they came in trust to the Lord and the redeemer of his appointment and they found that redeemer faithful. Do you realize that God has appointed for you and for me an even greater redeemer in Jesus than Boaz ever could have been? We have one who comes from the line of Boaz, but who unlike Boaz is not just a man. He's the one in whom the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. He's a redeemer 
who offers refuge under his wings, not just to those who are worthy like Ruth, but even to those who are unworthy. And not only does he offer them refuge, but he takes the unworthy and he makes them worthy at cost to himself. It's a redeemer who doesn't have to be startled in the middle of the night, who doesn't have to be called on to be who he is, but one who is so zealous who has so embraced his own identity that he pursues his people in their need even when they are running away from him and who is willing not just to pay the cost, but one who has already paid the cost on the cross for you and for me. One who bore in his own body the penalty of our sin, who doesn't just give money, who doesn't just give his social capital, who gives everything he has, his life, his blood, his flesh for you, that you would experience rest that isn't temporal, but rest that is eternal. A redeemer. A redeemer who, as Philippians 1.10 says, will not rest, but who says that the work I have begun in you, I will bring to completion at the day of my return and who has given you not six measures of barley, but the very spirit of God is a guarantee that he will finish that work. That's the redeemer that we have in Jesus. And here's the beauty of it. There's not a nearer one. He's it. He is, his arms are open wide and he is saying, there is rest here, the rest you crave. The question is just this, do you trust me? One of the, the songs that is getting uh, worn out at the Click House right now is this song called Apple Pie by a band called Flannel Graph. And I've played this song so many times, my wife is probably sick of it at this point. Uh, but I love this song. It's a retelling of the story of the prodigal son from the perspective of the son who runs away. And the song begins with the singer saying, I told my father I didn't love him anymore and I took his cash and I went out the door and then proceeds to describe this hunger and this thirst for rest that has so consumed him that he takes that money and he spends it on all the things he thinks will satisfy him. He spends it like a movie star. Men see him and they wanna be like him. Women see him and they wanna be in relationship with him. And the song says, I was like a king in America with apple pie, I had everything. But then it says, but the amount of money that I had, that was the amount of love that I was shown. And after all the partying and all the spending, now I had nothing. I had nothing, no rest, no party, no friends, just an empty wallet and a weariness that was deeper than the weariness I had when I started my journey. And just when the song seems to hit this portion where there seems to be no return, there's this lift in the singer's voice. And she says, I have nothing, but I had something. I had something and more than that, I had somebody. And the last line of the song says this, so I gathered up all my pride and hitchhiked to a town where my dignity had died and he the father I rejected, the father whose money I squandered, he was waiting, he was waiting, and he ran, and he kissed me. That song comes on, and I just start spontaneously crying, because that's me. That's all of us outside of Jesus. We live in this world where we want rest so desperately, and we will spend anything to find it. But at the end of the day, we all find ourselves exactly where the son in this story is saying, I have nothing, 
I'm emptier than I was before. I am more weary. I am more tired. I am more broken. But here's the beauty and the hope of the gospel. In Jesus, you who on your own have nothing, you have something. And more than that, you have somebody. A faithful redeemer. One who has willingly borne the blow of your sin, who has embraced it in his own body. One who is more eager to give you that rest than you are to ask him for it. One who so wanted you to share in that beauty, in that glory, in that mystery that satisfies all things. He entered this world and clung to you as Ruth clung to Naomi and embraced you at cost, even as Boaz does right here because he loved you. And it's that redeemer who says to the weary and the heavy laden, you just have to come to me because there is rest. The rest you crave and the rest you need. The question is just this. Do we trust him? Do we trust him enough to place our lives in the hands of another? A redeemer more faithful than we could ever dream, whose heart is more tender than we could ever imagine, and who what he says, he does. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that we have a God who pursues us in this way, that Lord, when we ran you didn't cast us off. You didn't turn your back. But Lord, you pursued us in love in Jesus. And you have given us a redeemer. And I pray for every single one of us here, Lord, that you would take our hearts, wherever they may be, Lord, wherever they are in this quest for rest. And Lord, we pray, bring us under the wings of a faithful redeemer. Lord, not just in theory, but in truth, in a way where our hearts sing with joy because we realize we had nothing, but now we have somebody. And that somebody holds us fast. And he will not rest until the work is complete. Be with us now in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.